Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. Each week, I have this opportunity to join you to study Scripture with uh, guests that join us to talk about the Scriptures that were a particularly eye-opener for them in their journey of faith, drawing them closer to Jesus Christ or to His Church, or both, of course. Um, the fullness of the Church is the fullness of Jesus Christ, experiencing the fullness of His Gospel as well as being a full member of His body. That's what we experience through baptism. And uh, our guests join us to talk about scriptures that help them discover the beauty of the Catholic faith. And our guest for today is a guest that uh, joined me previously on the Journey Home program, Taylor Marshall. Taylor is a, uh, a former Episcopal priest from Fort Worth, Texas. He was received with his wife into the Catholic Church in May of 2006. He's currently a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Dallas and is the author of The Crucified Rabbi, Judaism and the Origins of Catholic Christianity, published by St. John Press, just recently published. And he's also published The Catholic Perspectives on Paul. He has a blog, which I'd like to mention now in case you'd like to know more about what he does. It's taylormarshall.com. And uh, he joins us today, taking a break from his studies. I want to remind you before I give you today's text that we have a website, deepinscripture.com. And I've got to say, it's completely been revamped. And if you go to deepinscripture.com, as soon as you click on it, you'll be able to see this program video live, as well as contact information, the archive of programs, and also you can find out information about the Coming Home Network International. Taylor chose for his text today, at least the primary text, we'll look at a variety of other scriptures related to it, but the primary text comes from Romans chapter 15, verse 16. I'm going to read uh, first verse 15, which the, uh, actually I'll begin with verse 14, gives a little bit of the background, and then uh, I'll indicate when I'm focusing on the text that Marshall uh, Taylor has chosen for today. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brethren, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, and now this is the text we're focusing on today, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Hello, Taylor. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Great. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, now, are you involved with classes this summer, or are you, you just taking a break working on your dissertation? 
Yep, I'm just, uh, I have no responsibilities right now. I'm just working on dissertation and studying and things like that. You mentioned in your bio that you a, a new book just came out, The Crucified Rabbi, Judaism, and the Origins of Catholic Christianity. Tell us about the new book. Yes, well, you know, one of the, the struggles I had in, in understanding Catholicism over a number of years um, uh, were mostly resolved in understanding how, of course, Christ fulfills the Old Testament, mm-hmm. Hebrew Scriptures, but there's many more prophecies, um, and these are only fulfilled in Christ in the context of the Church, with the sacraments, with the priesthood, and other such things. And, and as I began to understand these things, of course, it opened my eyes to understand Catholic doctrine in a new light. So this book was, was a number of lectures that I gave in Washington, D.C. after coming into the Church, and a priest advised me that I should, uh, actually, you know, Monsignor William Stetson. Sure. Oh, yeah. He advised that I should uh, collect these lectures and kind of clean them up and put them in chapter form, and, and that became the book, The Crucified Rabbi. So, you know, it, it has about 300 prophecies that are fulfilled, you know, within the Catholic Church, and it goes over, you know, all the sacraments, the priesthood, even Catholic architecture as relates to the temple, uh, Jewish vestments, and Catholic vestments and just a number of traditions. And uh, it it's, has a lot of research in it, but it's also written at kind of a popular level, so, so anyone can read it and, and learn from it, and it kind of just, just shows a lot of the ways that helped me understand uh, what the Catholic Church was saying. I'm wondering, Taylor, does, does, your, um, does your book do essentially this? Let's say that we're sitting at a table, a large round table, and at the round table are representatives of a variety of Christian traditions, mm-hmm. Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, Assembly of God, Church of Christ, Pentecostal, Catholic, Orthodox, all gathered around the table. Does your book, in a sense, by looking at the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, slowly start you know, eliminating different possibilities from the table until the end, what we have is the Catholic faith? Not explicitly, but yes. I mean, when you start to look at these things and understand, as we're going to talk about today, the priesthood and mm-hmm. the Eucharist and that sacrificial dimension, you know, just right there, every you know, all the Protestant traditions are limited. You're basically just down to the Greek Orthodox and the, and the Catholic. Uh-huh. Um, and then from there, you, you can start looking at, at Old Testament prophecies regarding the papacy and the structure of the Church and the hierarchy. And, and so, yes, you know, at the end, you get to only the Catholic Church can fulfill all of these Jewish expectations. Well, that's exciting. Um, I haven't seen the book yet. <laughs> so, I'll send you a copy. Well, that's right. Before I, <laughs> As soon as I get off the program, we're going to order one. So that's, that's all right. You're a struggling Ph.D. student. I'll do yeah. all I can to support you and encourage the audience to do the same. One other question. You were an Episcopal priest before, so I'm guessing that even your understanding of your ministerial calling before was probably a bit more priestly than mine was as a Presbyterian. Yes, you know, I, I was ordained in the Anglican tradition or the Episcopal tradition, which retained the um, appearance or the form of the threefold ministry that we have in the Catholic Church, bishop, priest, and deacon. Um, however, over the centuries and sort of culminating with uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth in 1896, it was judged by the Holy See that Anglican or Episcopal clergy um, did not fall within the preserved line of apostolic succession, and so they were therefore not truly um, validly or illicitly ordained as priests. And there's some complicated issues related to that, and, and, and there's been a lot of kind of cross-pollinization with ordinations. But all that aside, the Anglican tradition, although there are sometimes references to what we might call a sacerdotal or a sacrificial understanding of ordained ministry, for the most part, especially in the early days of the English Reformation, um, going back to the 1500s, the Church of England and and those ministers understood themselves as priests and presbyters, but mainly in terms of of ministers, as preachers. Um, Of course, the ministry and the sacraments, but not necessarily as those who offer a sacrifice. God and propitiation for the living and the dead, like we have in the Catholic Church. So there is there is a big, important difference there, and, and I think coming to understand that was definitely something that pushed me over the line towards, towards Rome. 
All right. Well, I, I want to admit that uh, my, one of my staff members just brought me down a copy of your book. So we, it did, in fact, come to our offices, and it's in our okay. library, The Crucified Rabbi, okay. Judaism, and the Origins of Catholic Christianity. So it's, I'm great to hold a copy in my hand, Taylor. I apologize that I haven't had a chance to read it yet, so it'll be read. Uh, I also want to remind the audience, those of you who are interested, uh, that we will be printing Taylor's conversion story uh, in the September Coming Home Network newsletter. So if you're interested in reading his entire story, you can go to chnetwork.org. That's our website. And at that point, you can um, find out more about Taylor's story. All right, Taylor, let's, let's begin our discussion. Let me read the passage again, uh, specifically the Romans 15, 16 passage. And, uh, and then tell us why, in general, why you chose this passage. Paul writes, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in performing the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering up of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Taylor? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> make sure I didn't know. No, that's In general, uh, why this passage particularly for our discussion today? Sure. You know, when I was in, in college, uh, I think I was through my sophomore and junior year, I was, I was sort of a foaming-at-the-mouth Calvinist. This was before my, my time as an Anglican. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was very into, you know, John Calvin and the Reformers and was reading Reformed theology. And, yeah, I've had and that my, taste in my a, mouth. So sorry? I've had that taste in my mouth. I know what you're talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> and uh, I, I, my parents gave me a, t- a trip to go to Greece. Um, and, and I went, and it was a wonderful time, and while I was there, I went to Athens, and I was, I was walking around the city, and I was, you know, going to a few churches, and I, and I knew very little. I knew about Catholicism and that it was so evil and bad, in my perception at that time. <laughs> but Greek Orthodoxy was something that I didn't quite know how it, you know, was a good, bad, in between, and I was walking around the city, and I saw a monument that was erected to a, um, a deceased Archbishop, I guess the Archbishop of Athens, and uh, I knew Greek. I had studied Greek, and I was able to read it. And on the monument, it referred to the cathedral as a hieron, which in Greek means a temple, mm-hmm. and it referred to the bishop as an archieros, um, a high priest in Greek. And I remember reading that, and I was so angry because I thought, you know, here, you know, Paul came to this city. You know, and actually read that Paul uh, came to Athens. He preached the gospel here, and here we are 2,000 years later, and they've resurrected the Old Testament economy by having temples and high priests and priests. And I thought, you know, how far could you get from the gospel to <laughs> call Christian clergy priests and to call your churches temple? Because, you know, for me at that time, I thought of Paul as a, as a preacher, as a proclaimer of the gospel. I didn't think of Paul as a priest. Mm-hmm or the apostles as priests, that just seemed to me too Jewish, you know, and this is obviously something that I had to overcome, and that's part of the book, The Crucified Rabbi. And the reason I chose the the verse today from Romans is it's one example of Paul explicitly referring to himself as a priest, and he's he's using the, the Greek term here that corresponds to the Old Testament Hebrew word Kohen, which is a sacrificial priest priest that offers sacrifice. So if, if you have a Greek New Testament, uh, and you look at Romans 15, 16, you'll see there that Paul uses the word hiergunta, which is a composite, and you see right there that word hieros, uh, which is that word I saw there in Athens that day on the monument to that, to that archbishop, that priest in, in Greece. And so having discovered that, and, and what's, what's interesting is that the King James Version does not use the word priest or priestly in Romans 15, 16. <laughs> it's explicitly suppressed. Of course, King, the King James Bible was, was a Protestant Bible. Yeah. Um, if you have a Catholic Bible, you'll see the authentic translation, and, and even some contemporary um, translations. You and I looked at a few before the show. Yeah, the Revised example, Standard Version the NIV, and the NIV, yeah. NIV has priestly there, mm-hmm. uh, and so is the NASB. So seeing that in the Greek there in Romans 15, and if you're a Protestant, you have to scratch your head and say, that's interesting that Paul sees his ministry as priestly. He sees it as priestly, 
and, and priestly in a, in a sacerdotal or in a sacrificial way. What he's doing corresponds somehow to the Old Testament sacrificial notions of priesthood. So if Paul says it, it's right there in the sacred scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you, you've got to make room for that. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that's the only place where Paul refers to himself as being priestly, but that's one of the places where you can take any of your Protestant friends um, and just open up that verse and say, look, you know, Paul seems to be kind of priestly here. In his own admission, he's, he's priestly. And so this, this sort of opens the door for us to understand when Christ chose the apostles and, and he ordained the apostles and the ministers, he was doing... Um, he was doing something priestly, especially when you look at the, the Last Supper and, and what he asked them to do there, as it relates to the Todah sacrifice in the Old Testament, the Melchizedek tradition of offering bread and wine. I mean, we... Yeah, the... Uh, uh, oh, we actually lost Taylor. Let me keep... Uh, let's take a break right now. Bill, why don't we do that? And uh, we'll get Taylor back on here and continue with the discussion. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined today by Taylor Marshall, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on EWTN Live, what does it mean to be a truly feminine woman created in God's image in the world today? Find out when Father Mitch talks with Endow's Executive Director, Terry Polakovic, about educating on the nature and dignity of women. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Taylor Marshall. And uh, Taylor, are you back? We're not back yet. Okay, we've had a bit of a phone problem. We'll figure it out here just in a moment. Let me continue with the discussion there, because I think something that Taylor was saying was, was fascinating. Uh, I certainly, as a ordained Presbyterian pastor, rarely thought of my ministerial work as priestly. We never used the word. I think the closest we got to any kind of priestly uh, allusion was calling the table in the front of the uh, sanctuary an altar. We never thought of it as anything sacrificial happening there. We considered the Lord's Supper symbolic. And so what I was doing was ministering to the people the gospel. But in this context, maybe it's one of those verses I never saw either. I never looked at it seriously, partially because it's buried away in the back of Romans. And often that's a part of Romans people don't get to in their Bible studies. Uh, But what's very key about this passage was that Paul says that the grace was given him by God to be minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. It wasn't that the grace was given to him so he communicate the gospel to the Gentiles. The grace was given to him so that he could accomplish the priestly service of the gospel of, the gospel of God for the Gentiles. It was purely priestly focused, which is very significant. Something also crossed my mind as I was listening to uh, Taylor uh, give his explanation of, the, of uh, what he was discovering is that it's fascinating, at least in my mind it is, that almost all the churches that came directly out of the Reformation, whether it was the Lutheran, 
the Calvinistic churches, the Congregational churches, the Baptist churches, and then eventually the Episcopal church, at least during the early days, avoided any reference to sacrificial sacraments, to uh, the use of the priest, any of those references. However, in time, as you have breakaways from all those different separate denominations, we, we know that within 20 or 30 years, all those different groups, they were not just one Protestant division from Catholicism, but we had a number of independent streams. Few of them would talk to one another. I mean, Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the different groups rarely would talk with one another. And so, but what we have is as, as different groups broke away from those Reformation traditions, more and more of the newer Protestant traditions began using the words temple and priestly. And you'll find that in any city, you'll often find independent churches that'll call themselves the temple or the temple of God or, or things that deal with the, the sacrifice. Are you there, Taylor? I am. I apologize. I don't know what happened there. No problem. It's great to have you back. I was just spending great. a little bit more time reflecting on my own background, which never used any of the sacrificial or, or priestly uh, references, but also the idea that some of the newer Christian t- denominations who base what they have not on a rebellion against Rome, but on a clear reading of Scripture, pick up on these passages and even call their ministers priests and their churches yeah. temples. Have you noticed that down in Texas? Yeah, you, you see a lot of like holiness tabernacles and Zion Temple and things like things like that. Usually, kind of Pentecostal or holiness tradition. Right. They're no longer fighting against Rome or trying to avoid Catholic terminology. They're wanting to live by Scripture, and so they find those references. So the point is they see it clearly. What yeah. you and I were probably blinded to because of our background and our more Reformed training. Precisely. So we're in the midst of your uh, interruption there. You were talking about this passage. Now, did you have other passages that you wanted to refer to that kind of either led up to this or, you know, uh, expanded on it? Sure. You know, there's there's this one beautiful passage in, in the Old Testament from Malachi, mm-hmm. in chapter 1, verse 11, and it, it talks about how a pure offering will be offered from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same amongst the Gentiles. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the temple in Jerusalem was not amongst the Gentiles. So Malachi sees a day in which Gentile, apparently Gentile priests, will be offering a sacrifice, a pure oblation uh, with incense. Now, again, if we're sitting around a table with various Protestant traditions, and you ask them who, who among you, you know, are Gentiles, everyone will probably raise their hand and who's offering sacrifices to the Lord, and only the Catholics would, would, would raise their hand, because <laughs> Catholics have a sacrificial understanding of worship, because we have the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So again, you know, Malachi one eleven sort of narrows things down a little bit, and from there, you know, you can go to Isaiah, and Isaiah, in, in the very last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, and it's verses 19 through 21, Okay. Uh, there, Isaiah says that one day God will make priests and Levites out of the Gentiles. He'll take from amongst the Gentile nations priests and Levites. And so you have to ask yourself, well, when did that ever happen? I mean, in the Old Testament, it was forbidden for anyone besides a Levite uh, to be a priest. But in the New Covenant era, I mean, a great majority of our priests are Gentiles, and they're right. offering sacrifice every day. And so again, if we rounded up all the Protestant traditions, again, the Catholicism is, is the only one that's able to give an account for this Old Testament prophecy. So it's, it's really quite remarkable that the seeds uh, for what we understand as the priesthood are already there before Christ is even born. Mm-hmm. And of course, Christ himself is a priest, so his priestly activity will continue throughout time until the very end. You know, I was just thinking that there may be one other Christian tradition that would stubbornly want to be uh, still at the table. Yes. If we use the imagery, and that would be the Mormons. Oh, good, good, yep. I mean, interestingly enough, 
Mormons use the term temple, they use the term priests, they use the, the term uh, the Levites, and the, mm-hmm. all that des, de, defines the different layers within the organization. Yeah. I think they even use the term Melchizedek priesthood. Exactly. Uh, which is, you know, how, how do we argue against that? You know, that's, that's, a very, that's a very good point, and I think our reply is it's almost too simple, because you know, in the Old Testament, you, no one could just announce themselves as a priest. You know, that happened with prophets. But you couldn't just walk up to the temple and say, God's called me to be a priest, and, and they would let you come in and sacrifice. No, what happened is you had to be born of a priestly family. It was a genetic priesthood. Mm-hmm. If you wanted, like today we pray for vocations to the priesthood. Back then, if you were a priest, you just had more and more sons. <laughs> That's how you generated the priest. Um, and we find that the same principle is in effect in the New Testament. Of course, you know, the, the tradition is that the priests are celibate. That's because priesthood is conferred spiritually by the Holy Spirit, but it's still conferred through a line, and that line is apostolic succession. So Christ ordained the Twelve, the Twelve then ordained bishops, who ordained bishops, who ordained bishops, all the way to our day. The problem with the Mormon tradition is that Joseph Smith, started a new priesthood, or what he thought was a priesthood, mm-hmm. in the 1800s. That. And there's that famous line in Hebrews, whenever there's a change in a priesthood, there's a change in the law. That's in Hebrews. And Thomas Aquinas makes much of that. He, he, that's kind of the definitive text on understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament, because there's a change in the priesthood. If we follow Joseph Smith's reasoning, we would have to say that there's been a third test, or a new New mm-hmm. Testament because he's had a new change in the priesthood that started in the 1800s. And that's really problematic. Um, Unless he wants to claim that his Book of Mormon is that Third Testament. But, exactly. But once again, uh, you know, anybody could decide, even right now as we're speaking, I'm going to start a new priesthood and a new law and create my own religion. Yes. But, you know, in the New Testament we see nothing nothing foreseen like that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what we read is, the gates of hell will not prevail against the Church. So it seems that, that what Christ has set up is the structure until the end of the world, until he comes again in glory. So I, it, the Mormons are insightful in that they see these, these priestly elements. Unfortunately, they've uh, built them upon sand um, from the Catholic point of view. Yeah, the, one of the scriptures that points out this apostolic succession is 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, mm-hmm. when Paul says, what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see this, the continuity of the passing on of the authority and the, and the fullness to entrusted men who they're going to trust it to others and, and on and on and on. And there you have that, that line, that you, the lineage that is established by the Spirit, as opposed to a biological uh, lineage. Right. And really the Mormon um, example, as well as the examples of those little churches that, that you mentioned earlier, mostly of the holiness tradition downtown, you know, the, yep. the temples, uh, the tabernacles, those that call themselves priests, is an interesting two-edged sword, because on the one hand, it shows the problem of sola scriptura, uh, where without authority, people on their own interpretation read the Bible, see what it says, and then believe, well, it's not being done right over here, so I'm going to go out and do it right for the first time in the last 2,000 years. And that happens every five days somewhere in the United States, statistics yeah. show. But on the other hand, Taylor, it does demonstrate that when you look at the Scripture clearly, the temple, the priesthood is there. It's just that yeah, another, most another of us ignored it. That brought that out for me as I was, you know, groping through and trying to understand these things was was um, in Hebrews. Uh, in, in Hebrews, uh, oh, they often talked about how we have a temple that the Jews are not able to eat from. And, I mean, I'm sorry, not a temple, an altar. That yes. We have an altar. Uh, the Greek there is Thusia Sterion, and Thusia is the Greek word for sacrifice. And so... Already in the book of Hebrews, um, the, the apostolic church is understanding their community as liturgical, as sacrificial, and as centered around an altar, uh, an altar that's sacrificial. And, 
And again, these, these are things that you kind of miss maybe sometimes in translation, but, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I began to see these things, I began to see, wow, you know, the early church understood itself as a temple. The entire church was a temple. You see that in, in, in Peter's epistle, also in Paul, and in this Corinthian correspondence. So if we are a temple, it must have an altar and it must have priests. Because a temple isn't just a room or an auditorium. A temple is a place, a locus of sacrifice. And so if already in the New Testament we're understanding the church as a temple, that means that this temple, this church, must have a priest, it must have priests, and it must have an altar. And so it's really not, none of these are stretches or interpretive stretches to try to make there be priests um, or sacrificial understandings of worship into the New Testament. We're not forcing anything. In fact, we're just sort of, you know, as you were pointing out with the, the holiness people and their tabernacles and temples, it's just sort of the obvious yeah. way of understanding and interpreting what Christ has done, because he is the high priest. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, I had mentioned on a Journey Home program one time the passages from Hebrews that uh, emphasize that apostasy is possible in chapter 6, mm. all right, that, that say very clearly, beginning with verse 4, uh, how difficult, he says, Paul used with impossible to restore someone who had once once tasted the heavenly gift, which would have been the Holy Spirit through baptism, mm-hmm. became partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, but if they commit apostasy, yeah. fall away. And I remember saying, you know, that's a proof of apostasy, uh, that the whole idea of once saved, always saved doesn't fly with exactly. that kind of a passage. But I got an, actually from somebody in Texas, a very conservative Christian in Texas, uh, emailed me later and said that Hebrews doesn't apply to us Christians. <laughs> you know, the whole book, and which is so goofy in a way, because on the one hand, the Bible's the sole foundation for faith. It's infallible. It's inspired. It's the only thing we need except this book. I don't yeah. have to listen to this book in the Bible or this book or that book. And Luther himself was trying to do that by throwing out James. But, you know, the reason is that Hebrews from beginning to end is all about the priesthood. Precisely. And it's, he, I assume that the caller was, was sort of what you call dispensationalist and not and sort of slicing up the New Testament as Jewish Gentile. Yes, yes, right. right. Yeah, and, and yeah, again, it's just, it's just I, guess, I guess for him, he, he, real, he, he was perceptive enough to realize where it was going. Yeah, in fact, you're in the shadow of that uh, particular uh, group yes. of folk down there in uh, in Dallas area. So, yes. well, I was actually I, I did a local uh, radio interview here, and and a caller actually did call in and, and ask because um, I was citing some from the Gospels and some from Acts and some from Paul, and and the person said, "Well, we can only go from Paul because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and we're Gentiles." <laughs> and and there's yet another example of that error that that if we if we just have to focus on Paul and that even the Gospels are off limits to us. I mean, you can just see how crazy private judgment has become. Yeah, yeah, and you know, um, the the verse you chose. Uh, I'm going to push on another part of that verse, which sure. I, you talked about, but I'm going to talk about a little bit more. This idea of that, so that the offering up of the Gentiles may be acceptable. So that the offering up of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Talk about that verse again, the phrasing of that, because. Are we talking about the Gentiles being over, offered up, or what the Gentiles are offering up? You know, I, I think ultimately the answer is yes, it's both. <laughs> uh, um, Paul, I think in that context, if we, if we read it as literally as possible, Paul sees himself as, as when he brings the Gentiles to faith in Christ, mm-hmm. that they know that Christ is the Savior of mankind and receive the remission of sins and receive baptism and are incorporated into the Church, he is offering them as living sacrifices to the Father through Jesus Christ. All of us, as he says in, in Romans, yep. have to offer ourselves as, as reasonable sacrifices to the Lord. Each one of us um, must live a life that's sacrificial, and, and this is why Jesus says all of us must take up our cross daily and follow him. Taking up a cross is a sacrificial offering. So each of us offer are offered up to God through Christ as sacrifices. And so Paul sees his apostolic ministry of preaching and evangelizing 
as sacrificial in that way as, as well, because he is he's taking these Gentiles who are pagan, who are idolatrous, and he's offering them up as pure to God, uh, as a pure and as a reasonable sacrifice. But the other side of that is that when Christians are incorporated and come to faith in Christ, they don't just have quiet times every morning or, or just go to Bible <laughs> studies. They were incorporated into the community, the early Christian community, the Church, and they began to partake of the Holy Eucharist. And as they came together to, and of course they didn't have their own Bibles, they could only hear the Word of God as it was read in the liturgical communal setting on Sunday. That context was the Eucharist. And we Catholics believe that whenever we come together, of course Christ is offered uh, to the Father, not again and again and again, but it's that one sacrifice mm-hmm. represented for us on the altar. But each of us at the offertory join our own souls, our own body, all of our troubles, um, our children, our work, our concerns. We place it all up there with Christ because He's the head and we're the body. And so, is it the Gentiles or is it just the Eucharist? I think, I think here Paul sees it as all wrapped up together, mm-hmm. that the mystery of the body of Christ, of course, is offered with the head, who is Jesus, but also with the body, with all of us. And, and I think we see this most explicitly um, in the Corinthian uh, correspondence, and the Council of Trent actually cites this in, in confirming what the Catholic priesthood is, which is another thing I found really interesting. It's in Session 22. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it cites... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he's talking about whenever you come together as a community, as you come together as a church, mm-hmm. and he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participa- participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, or we partake of the one bread. And then he says, this is very interesting, he says, quote, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then, says Paul, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partakers of demons. You cannot therefore drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So he moves really fast there, but what he says is, when we come together, there's the broken bread and there's the cup, and this is participation in the body and blood of Christ. And then he says that in the Old Testament were not those who partake of the altar partakers of, 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 of God's covenant, of his blessings. And then he moves on and he says even the, even the idolatrous pagans, when they go to their te- temples and they eat meat sacrifice, they become partakers of those demons who, who, who hide behind the idols. And so right there, and this is what the Council of Trent cites, he says, is they say Paul is showing that the liturgical community is sacrificial and that the priests who offer these offerings at the altar or at the table are sacrificial priests. It applies to the Christians, as Paul's explaining it with the Eucharist. It applies with the Jews and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And it applies to the pagans. All three of them have priests. All three of them have altars. So, I mean, there's yet again... Uh, another priestly passage, uh, I think it relates to the question that you just brought up of, of what does it mean when, when Paul says he offers up a priestly, I mean, a, uh, yeah, he offers up as a priestly ministry to Gentiles. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And let me ask you something, Taylor, from your background when you were a, a pastor. I was a Presbyterian pastor, brought up Lutheran. And I'm wondering if, if, uh, I had become so accustomed in my thinking all of my life, all of my seminary training, all of my pastoral ministry, to think in terms of symbols, that even when I looked at a passage that looked like priestly imagery, it didn't hit me. It didn't, I didn't take it seriously. What I was doing was symbolic. I was preaching the gospel. I was teaching. I was ministering in Christ. Certainly the Holy Spirit uh, you know, hopefully was was working through me and changing people's lives. But when you talk about the, the what they're talking about, we're talking about something very, very serious. 
the sacrifice. I mean, that's why the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 was so significant. Can we let Gentiles in? Is this an acceptable sacrifice? Right, exactly. An acceptable offering. And the, you know, the danger is of pretending to be a priest when you don't have the credentials. Mm. When what you're doing isn't authentic, because then you qualify for the other thing that Paul was talking about, that you're of like the pagans, exactly. offering to an idol. Exactly. You can't just you know, make yourself a priest. I mean, that was that's ultimately was the last domino to fall in my own conversion. Is, is um, you know, as an Anglican, I'd come much closer to the church. And especially when I went to an Anglican seminary, I went to Neshota House mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, which is very, it's called Anglo-Catholic, right. uh, high church. It's, it's very similar to Catholicism. I mean, on campus, there would be rosary, and they prayed the Angelus every day, and there was even Eucharistic um, adoration, you know, I mean, it was mm-hmm. very Catholic um, and, and very defensive about not being Roman Catholic. Um, but as I passed through that and started to become aware of more problems and then in my own my own journey and just wondering what does it mean to be a priest I thought to myself I mean it, it culminated in, in a trip to Rome and and being at a mass with Pope Benedict and knowing that I couldn't receive communion you know <laughs> which is really another way of saying I'm not part I'm not I'm not part of this worthy sacrifice <laughs> because I'm in schism you know, I'm in schism, and that's when it really hit me. I am in schism. I am not in communio. I'm not in communion. And and um, thought to myself, even if I am a validly ordained priest, let's say even if I am a Catholic priest, is it okay for me to consecrate the body and blood of Jesus outside of communion with the Church? No. I mean, yeah. even that in itself is sacrilegious because you're taking what belongs to the community of faith communion and ripping it out of the very heart of it. And at worst, if I'm not a priest, as the Church teaches, then what I'm really doing is I'm deceiving a lot of people, I'm deceiving myself, and I'm saying that this is the body of Christ when in fact it's just bread. And that's a very troubling realization to come to, and, and it troubled me deeply, and, and um, it was a real crisis for me, and you know, there's only one option left, and that was renounce the ministry that I had been ordained in and become yeah. a Catholic. And um, it was all worth it. It's yeah. the pearl of great price. I, I will not say that it was easy or that it's always been easy or my life became a Shangri-La or anything like that. <laughs> but but the, the consolation and the comforts of the Eucharist, of having the Pope having the magisterium, of having just this connection with 2,000 years of holy saints and martyrs and nuns and religious and popes, um, the great consolation of, of sacramental confession and absolution and penance, um, the social teachings of the Church, the teachings on, on morals, um, it, you know, you feel like you are you are in a castle. You're protected. You know, when I was when I was an Anglican clergyman, I always felt that oh, the Anglican communion's falling apart, and I have to protect it, and I have to hold it up, and and I have to do all this. And as a Catholic, you know, we are called to apostolate, but there's this security in knowing that the gates of hell will never prevail against this church, and that the Holy Spirit indwells it in such a supernatural, powerful way. And I mean, all we have to do is read the newspapers to know that the Church isn't perfect, but I think that that when you see it through spiritual eyes, you realize that this is the very same institution instituted by Christ so long ago, and that it has a real connection to the early Church. I mean, you really, as you know, I mean, there's just, there's really no way to, to explain it to anyone who hasn't experienced it. Yeah. Such a wonderful, beautiful, powerful thing, and you know, if there, if there are any um, non-Catholics listening, Protestant, Anglican, uh, otherwise, you know, I would just encourage them to to pray and to ask Jesus 
where do you want me to be? And, you know, I often say that the Catholic Church offers us all of these gifts, all of these sacraments, all of these blessings and graces and charisms. And, you know, you can find some of these things in Protestant traditions, you know, baptism or the Bible or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I always ask, do you want to have some of the gifts or do you want to have access to all the gifts? And if Jesus wants us to have all these things, then we should open our hands and say, yes, I want all of these things. And, and I think, you know, where we find them, we find them in the Catholic Church. So it's a blessing. And, of course, you know, as we said earlier, that it's sacrificial and you have to carry your cross. It's not, not necessarily easy, but it gives you the grace. And, right. And, um, and he talked about that in that verse. Marshall, let's take one last break. Sure. We come back. I'd like you to draw back in the remaining minutes uh, just a little bit more reflection on the mandate you know, once you discover this truth, it, mm. it's not just that, well, okay, I'll accept the Catholic Church as one of many, mm. but what you discovered in your own journey was the mandate to mm. become a part of the fullness of this church. Yes. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Taylor Marshall, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Taylor Marshall. Once again, I want to remind the audience that Taylor has very recently put out a book, The Crucified Rabbi, Judaism, the Origins, and the Origins of Catholic Christianity, which basically Taylor goes in far more detail of of a lot of the stuff you've been talking about today. Uh, What about this mandate? Talk about that. Well, you know, the mandate is, is if you know the Catholic Church is the Church, you have to join. Um, when I was when I was still an Episcopal priest, um, a man who who I greatly loved, who, who had been a parishioner at the church that I was ministering at, had become Catholic, and we were on the phone one night, and he said, "You know, Father Marshall, you you sure take you know your faith seriously and your preaching, and you know I just know you, you do." He's like, but you know, I just he's like I don't want to offend you, but he's like I just don't know if you've really had the courage to look into the question, "What is the church?" And he said. You know, when and if you do, he's like, if you come to know that the Catholic Church is the Church, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you have to enter it to be saved. And he was referring to, in the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, paragraph 846, and it it says that um, those who know that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, those who would refuse either to enter it or or to remain into it, cannot be saved. And and that kind of hit me. You know, I, I, I realized, you know, this isn't playing around. This is this is heaven, hell, grace, sin. Um, this is this is this is where the rubber meets the road. And and if the Catholic Church really is the true church, as you said, you know, you, you can't just accept it as a good option amongst many. Um, you know, it, it's 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 an infallible claim and and if you know the truth, you have to put forward that foot and, and begin to enter and um, and, and there's a lot, even within the church today, a lot of people that want to downplay that statement, and some do so out of ignorance, not really 
understanding sure. that because we look at it from a perspective of 2,000 years later with 30,000 denominations and it sounds like an arrogant thing for one church to say you got to be a part of us to be saved when when they all feel like they can be saved no matter where they are. And right. But but what right. we're talking about is going back to the beginning and recognizing that Jesus didn't really just say, here's my gospel, just go out there and believe it yeah. on your own independently, don't be a part of anybody, as opposed to recognizing that from the beginning there was everything you've been talking about, Taylor. There was the sacrifice, there was the priesthood, there was the temple, there was the body of Christ. All of that was to have been one as Christ wanted in John 17. It's yeah. we that have divided it up. Exactly. And and he prays, you know, in, in, in John's Gospel, he prays you know, that we may all be one, that the nations might believe. I mean, why why does the world, is it why is it not better evangelized? Why do the Muslims not believe? Why why does China, why is it not evangelized? The reason is because we are divided, yeah. and, and we cause scandal. And... Um, if, if we come together as Christ intended us, and it's not just coming together to be one in some generic sense, it's coming together to be one in a Eucharistic sense, just like Paul talked about in that passage we read from 1 Corinthians, mm-hmm. that we come together to be one sacrifice, one oblation offered through Jesus Christ. That's the, that He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to be saved is through Him and through that one body that He instituted 2,000 years ago. So, on the one hand, it is sort of scary, and it's, it's a big challenge um, for those who are studying, you know, th- through the doctrines of the Church and praying and, and, and looking into the Catholic faith. But on the other hand, it's, it's just coming through and not other side, and I know you feel the same way. It's just such a blessing. Yeah. And I often look back and I think of all the years that were wasted not being a Catholic. I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit has His ways, and there's a purpose for all these things, but... I just wish, wow, I wish I could have been born to a Catholic family, you know? Yeah, too. And, and so many so many mistakes and errors hopefully would have, by God's grace, been, been avoided. And frankly, sadly, there are so many Catholics around the world that don't appreciate the great gift that they have. Yeah. And, and we don't live like a good model of our faith very often. And so in some ways, there are many outside the church that are there because we've offended them. Maybe we've been a bad example. So we have to act more unified in our love for one another. So, well, Taylor, thanks for joining us today on the program. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, God bless you in your studies as you finish up that long process of your dissertation so you can uh, get your PhD and go on to teach. I assume that's what you want to do? Yes, yes, be wonderful. All right, well, God bless. Thank you for joining us on the program. And all of you, thank you for joining us. I hope this has been an encouragement to you and, and, and maybe a challenge to your thinking. The church that you attend, if it isn't Catholic, then what about the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifice? What parts of the scripture do you ignore? Take all of his word, tradition and scripture. God bless you. See you next week.